This podcast is offered through the Sacred Community Project, an inner spiritual collective working to lower the barriers of access to contemplative and devotional practices. Through the universal teachings of love, service, remembrance, and truth, SCP utilizes modern technology to promote eternal values. Learn more at sacredcommunityproject.org. Welcome everyone to the Sacred Community Project. I am today's host, Sitaram Das, and I am joined here by Priti, uh, who was born and raised in India, uh, moved to the United States at age 27, uh, devoted student of Ram Das. She serves as an end-of-life companion at hospices in America, is actively involved with nonprofit shelters in India to serve the old, dying, unhoused elders. Uh, She's also on the board at Hanuman Maui, and some of her sources of joy are chanting and listening to music, spending time in nature, and her two incredibly supportive daughters. So welcome, Priti, and yeah, I really appreciate you uh, talking with me today. Thank you so much, Sita Ramdas. Thank you for being such a, a great anchor for Hanuman Maui now and Ramdas then, since uh, he is not in his body here, but his essence is, you know, ever pervading. But someone like you, who's uh, just been very dear to the entire satsang, the entire community, just the sweetness that you bring with you, truly brings Ramdas forward. So thank you for all that you do and you offer. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for that. And um, yeah, I definitely want to uh, talk about uh, Hanuman Maui and just Ramdas's continued presence that's there, because I know you're very active in that. But I thought first uh, we could start maybe by you sharing a little bit about how you came in contact with Ramdas and also the influence that he's had on, on your life. Um, I was born and raised in India and had a, I've, I've been blessed with a very easy life. Um, good education, a very loving family. Um, I never really lacked anything as I was growing up. I, you know, life brought me to the States, to America and, uh, I followed my husband and my child here and was a normal householder. Um, growing up in India as a girl back in the 70s, there was a lot of constriction around that. Um, coming from an affluent family, I wasn't encouraged to follow a career. I was groomed at one of the best schools, best college, um, which was very common then is Culturally, you groom the daughter to get married into a, a family better than your own. And uh, you're told from a very young age that, uh, you know, for girls especially, uh, this is your life to be a mom, to be a mother, and to be in service of the family as, as you go on and take on your own responsibilities. And that is what my upbringing has been at watched all the women in my family be amazing mothers and sisters and wives. Um, 
moving to the United States for the first few years, I was so scared to be here. Because what I found on TV was Ricky Lake and, you know, I don't remember the names anymore. And I was so fearful on how will I raise a child in this country that has no boundaries. And I came from a lot of boundaries and a lot of this is how you do things. Uh, and this is who you are. You're told who you are. And those were that was my comfort place. So um, I kind of settled into the way of life here, slowly meeting people, learning, lost, completely lost. I really did not even know what food I liked by the end of, you know, being mm. close to like 40 or whatever. And uh, something started to shift. But around my the late 30, something was shifting within me and I couldn't really narrow it down, but everything felt wrong about myself, about where I was, about who I was being. Everything felt disconnected from my inner self. And... Uh, some certain circumstances led me to finding Dr. Wayne Dyer's book in the library right around my around when I was 38 or so. And he, he, he was, it was Change Your Thoughts, Change Your Life, the, the book of the Tao. And kind of intrigued me and I had never heard of him, picked up the book, read the first two, three chapters. He sounded very interesting and I uh, wanted to look more into who's Dr. Wayne Dyer and, you know, got onto the web. He would talk about Ramdas and what his mentor and he, he credited a lot of his own journey to Ramdas. And that was very intriguing Ramdas. Uh, looked into Ramdas. Okay, he was a Harvard professor, went to India, found his guru, came back here big you know, big name in the in the country and uh, credited for bringing in Eastern philosophy, Eastern methods into the United States and the West, of course. Uh, my first thought was judgmental. I was like, ah, so many people have gone to India and come back a guru, another one of those probably. And I let it be at that. And Dr. Wayne Dyer, I continued to listen to his lectures on PBS, and I even went for one of his workshops to Los Angeles. And there at the at that table of things to buy, there was Ramdas's uh, still here set of CDs. And I picked that one up and the Be Here Now book. Brought it home back to Denver with me. And the moment I opened the book, it, it opens in a different way. It's not a regular left to right. It's a top to bottom. And I flip through a few pages and I'm like, this is not for me. This is for somebody who needs, who's probably using some substances to be in a different state of mind. And I put it away. And I tried to listen to the CDs and nothing would make sense to me. Mm -hmm. So I just let that sit. 
And I continued to dwell more into Dr. Wayne Dyer, Byron Katie, and, you know, the more common sense kind of direction. Six months later or so, I picked up the CDs again. And it started to download. It just started making sense. By the time I got to the sixth CD, all I wanted was to know where Ramdas was and I wanted to meet this being and how do you find him. In those days, the internet was not strong enough in the sense of information about where he is now. So um, it was such a yearning, such a yearning and a restlessness within me because there was, there was this calling and I didn't know how to get the answer. Dr. Wendaya talked about one of his workshops on Mavi where Ramdas was the guest speaker the previous year. So I figured, oh, well, if he was a guest speaker on, in his workshop, maybe he will, maybe he'll be a guest speaker again. He was so revered by Dr. Wendaya. To cut a long story short, landed up in Maui for Dr. Wendaya's weekend workshop at Hay House. And while checking in, I remember asking this lady, is Ramdas going to be here? And she refused to answer my question. She said, I'm not allowed to divulge any, sorry, um, information. So one of the event directors heard my question and she kind of maybe felt some kindness and pulled me on the side and said, let me tell you, he will be here tomorrow. So that was a, okay, I'm in the right place. And uh, he did arrive the second day of the workshop. We were in the middle of the workshop going on and he, Tasima brought him very silently inside the auditorium and the air changed instantly. There was something that was, again, you can't really point a finger on it, but something changed in the vibration of that auditorium. And he silently just waited wherever they had placed his seat for his turn to speak when it came up. For me, that moment just, everything just stopped. Time stopped, I don't remember Anything he said, I don't remember what the topic of discussion was. All I know was that he was there. And then um, Be Love Now was released at that point of time. So he was signing books uh, in the lunch hour uh, there at the hotel in the, in the corridor. So I got into the line to get my book signed. And that's the only book I've ever got signed by him. I've never had the desire after that to ever get anything in that physical form was enough. I waited for my turn uh, and uh, I got my book signed and I couldn't move from that space. So he continued to sign books and I just stood across from him. And every so often he would look up and make eye contact with me. And I would just look at, I was just there. I don't think I even had any thoughts. I was just there. All the books got signed. The conference restarted. And it was just 
the three of us in that corridor. And I asked Dasima if I could just pay my respect. I'd asked her that earlier if I could. In India, we pay respects by touching the feet of the person we consider elder or we want to offer our honor to. And she said that would be okay. But before I could even approach, he looked at me and kind of gave me that look like, it's okay, come over. I sat down by his feet and uh, he, just with his, the hand that worked, he just took my head and put it on his lap. That's it. I was home. And I've been home ever since then. Mm. Um, it was such a big moment that I, I cannot explain the, it, there is no word for it. I, I can't describe the sweetness and honey to someone who hasn't tasted honey. So, so I just keep it really close to my heart and that, that moment that changed my life forever yeah. ever and ever and ever and uh, um, I, I we didn't speak a single word I, I just wept and he allowed me he gave me permission to just be in that space and take my time no haste and uh, I don't think I even looked up at his face at that point of time I was I was in a different world altogether. And then it was time for him to go and and we just said namaste and he left. I stood there watching them leave and I couldn't go back into the conference. So I just sat in the garden till my family came to pick me up. And then I said, oh my God, I should have at least walked him to the car. I had a few more minutes I could have spent with him, but I was way too deep into the light in within me perhaps that none of those mechanical thoughts crossed my mind then. When my family picked me up that afternoon, my husband asked me, so how was it meeting Ramdas? You, you got your, you know, you, this has been your wish. That's why we came to Maui. And the only thing that came out of my mouth was, I felt if I died now, mm. I'm content. I've lived a full life. And he said, why would you say such a morbid thing when you're, it's one of your happiest days? I said, no, I just feel so content that my life has been beautiful. I have lovely children, a great family, wonderful upbringing. And now I felt like I met I met God and what more can I ask for from my life? So it, it was a very selfish statement, but at the same time, it was the level of my contentment that I'm good. And uh, going back from Maui, then of course it was always all about Ramdas and his books and his teachings and his, Whatever, whatever material I could find, uh, and then wanting, of course, more of him. Uh, that brought me back to the retreat in Nepilikai. And I met him again in a big 
public setting and, you know, with all the teachers and the chanting, which was just so beautiful, so beautiful. But I left wanting more. And that's when I was informed that he does personal retreats at his home in Maui. And uh, I uh, wrote to the to the foundation and asked for a personal retreat. And, and they asked me reasons and I had a phone interview. And then I showed up here for my first personal retreat with Randas. That is the beginning of the story. So you had this reawakening, right? And then uh, from what I know, uh, this the two things for you is in terms of just deepening your commitment to the spiritual path, devotional practices, and then also uh, engaging in service. And uh, maybe you could talk about um, was getting into doing hospice work, was that the first like overtly kind of spiritual uh, service focused thing that you did after meeting Ramdas? No. Uh, no, no. When I met Ramdas for the first uh, for the first personal retreat in the house, the very morning he came to the Ohana, and he would announce Namaste, Namaste, as he would be arriving. That that heartbeat increased, and you know he arrived, and I offered him a cup of tea, and. Uh, it was this moment of settling down. He looked at me and said, who are you? And I couldn't understand the question. So I took a minute or so, and then I just shrugged my shoulder. And he looked at me with those gentle, kind, tender eyes. He said, you're a mother. You're a sister. You're a wife. You're a student, you're a friend. And I said, oh, I'm a devotee. And we started counting these different adjectives from that point. And then when we kind of said quite a few, and then when we stopped, he smiled and said, you're none of these. You're a soul. And you're playing all these roles. That struck me so hard. Because mm. I had never looked at it myself as a soul. Yeah, mom and sister and etc. 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 I'm a soul. What does that even mean? Like, of course, growing up in India, I had the background of all you know, the Hanuman Chalisa and the Aarti and the Pujas and the Bhajans, but they were always reflected out. This was the first statement that was reflected to my inner being. I'm a soul. And he gave me a few minutes to kind of just let that settle in, which, trust me, is still settling, and I... I would remind myself millions of times, I'm a soul, I'm a soul, I'm a soul. Don't get attached to the role too much. And then he said, honor, honor all your roles, but never forget your soul. And uh, that first day was about that much that I got. And then I sat with that, you know, while I was here in the space holds that. 
provides us with that womb to birth that inner being. Uh, my second question to him was, my daughter was just starting out her teenage years, the first, the older one, just about. And I said, and my teenage years were very different because of being in India. And over here, children are their own beings and they have a lot of expression if you allow them to and their own opinions. And, and I would often get into a conflict because I had been raised very differently. So I told Ramdas, as the role of a mother, what do I do? How do I fulfill this role from the place of my soul? And he said, stop finding yourself in your daughter. Hmm. Don't look for yourself in your children. That is my first selfless seva. Is uh -huh. being there as a, playing the role of a mother without expectations, remembering I'm there to nourish and support this being who has chosen to come through me, but not for me. That completely changed my relationship with both my girls and they became my teachers all of a sudden. Rather than mm -hmm. me teaching them, they became my teachers learning to forgive, learning to be compassionate, learning to listen to them. All of that started from there. So that for me is my first seva, path of seva. It's towards these two beings who are going to be on their own journey, but they will bring the light as they go for, forward and I just have to pour the oil in that lamp. Mm. Not for me, it's for them. And, and I feel so proud and humbled at the same time on what beautiful beings they've turned out to be. Very different, but just so expanded and conscious and aware of so many things that I was not at that age of environment human rights how do we leave the earth a better place than we came to how do we use our voice for the right reasons uh, advocating for themselves so all of these amazing qualities that they express teach me mm. even today okay yeah so i hear in that, that in that true service, uh, one you're you're really seeing uh, you're see, really seeing your kids as your teacher, um, and also you're not looking for them to fulfill some need for you. I mean, it's it's really that's the the core element there. Yeah, and is that is that more or less that that relationship that you 
worked on developing with, with, with your kids, is that the, the same spirit that, that you bring into these other aspects of your life? Absolutely. That's where it started. I, I learned to understand that charity begins at home mm. more. And I'm the same soul, be it in at home, in home situation, be it at a party, be it at a, a rally, or be it in hospice. That core me is going to be the same no matter where I am. And that, even when I was working professionally, that that value continued on. And it's been really precious. It's, it's, it's my, just my strength is to remember Ram Das's roles and being integral with all my roles, but remember that I'm a soul. So something just to be able to even use my voice uh, more freely you know he gave me permission to be me and uh, slowly slowly painfully a lot of times nauseatingly i've you know with guru kripa it's been feeling a layer off a layer off a layer off and it continues uh it's just getting easier so hospice came into my life much later uh hospice came to my life into my life only seven years ago and that's very interesting because um, growing up, again, I'll go back to my roots in India. I was around a lot of elderly people in old age. It's very common. But interestingly, we, and a lot of Westerners may not know this, but people in India are very fearful of death. Mm. It doesn't sound like that, I know. I've heard a lot of, you know, different teachers here speak about how open it is over there, but that's not what I've experienced throughout my life and even today if I use the word death there's a certain tension in the air back in India in my family my mother always says can't you say something nice do you always have to talk about death it's a taboo topic uh -huh. so yes people do die at home and yes it's very uh, open in that manner but the Conditioning around death and dying is a closed taboo topic. They don't want to talk about it openly. Uh, and so they're not accepting of it. Uh -huh. So I, I grew up with that fear of death and dying, uh, which again, when I think back and connect the dots from the past, it really never resonated with me. But, you know, you where you are, you kind of hear things and you do things and so to, to give you a small example, uh, there is a fast, a religious fast, and I respect that deeply. I don't follow that anymore, but for many years I have. Where married women, once a year, married Hindu women, fast from uh, sunrise to moonrise without food and water uh, for the longevity and health of their husbands. And it's very traditional and very it's celebrated and it's a big deal for women to dress up and, you know, I'm fasting today for my husband and it's for the longevity, which is a beautiful sentiment. But one time I was made to sit and hear the story and how that particular fast started and why is it done? And it was 
so putting off for my consciousness and never ever could hear the story again because it mm. was about bargaining with the lord of death when a certain lady's husband's time to die has arrived and she bargains with him that i will not let you take him right now and something to do with the courses i mean, i don't remember the story but i remember it was very putting off for me so i continued to fast because it was a part of a tradition but it was never coming from a place of love it was coming from a fear of death uh-huh. women and dependency and you know the whole widow part of it that's already embedded in indian culture even today as i read more as i read uh and milked more of ramdas's books and teachings and um and still here there was a particular statement in one of the chapters where he said uh the person who's dying often gets neglected the most because the family is very attached in keeping them alive and the doctor has to because that's his profession but the one who's going through that journey is often lonely and is not heard mm. so that hit me really hard and uh, when my maternal grandmother was passing on in india and i was i was in colorado i got a phone call and it was just instant that i have to go and i remember telling my mom Well, I come on the next flight. I'm the oldest grandchild, and she's probably waiting because she's been swaying between ICU and ventilator and out of it, and it's just like she's not releasing, and there's something going on, and maybe she just wants to see me when I'm, I'm her favorite grandchild. So I took the next, and my mother's instant reaction was, "Don't come." Like why? So because then she'll know she's dying. Hmm. And I said, "What's wrong with that?" and that was just not something they wanted to talk about so of course i made it to india and uh-huh. met my grandmother in the icu and that was the last time she opened her eyes and smiled at me like hey you arrived it's kind of waiting for you and two days later she dropped her body and i was there for the funeral and four day trip i got to meet her say goodbye to her thank her for being my grandma giving me all the love and a really nice goodbye and funeral and cremation and back i was here that just solidified for me the value of opening my heart to the biggest moment of my journey and uh, all of us who are here in our bodies so when hospice came around that opportunity to volunteer it was an instant match in for me and i was welcomed beyond my expression again because the very first meeting that i was introduced to my companion she was a lady with dementia for many years and she looked she held my hand and i was sitting on the ground and she looked into my eyes and very softly she came really she brought me really close and she goes you know I talk to the other side. Hmm. They sure are glad you're here. 
Wow. And, you know, Ramdas always said, I can't give anybody anything. I can only be. So that is one of my values. Anytime anybody would thank me for giving my time, I'm like, oh, I receive way more than I can even offer. I'm just offering time. They offer me their trust and their friendship and their sense of safety when I'm there. And I just got led into dementia in a big way. A lot of my hospice companions were mostly dementia, uh, okay. beings with dementia. So that was just so uh, amazing to meet them where they are. And we can really just be, we, we could just be these two souls hanging out yeah. and brought so much joy uh, to me as well as them. I, I have some amazing stories of my experiences with my companions and at, at the different communities and it it humbles me every time I think about it. They are at that with 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 very um, uh, advanced dementia, they become very pure and innocent mm. because they have no history left. Mm-hmm. So when the stories are gone, then they're just the, this that's a being meeting a being, and it's just a party. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, well, I guess. I am really naturally interested just your perspective on why do you think there's the disconnect between in India there being just these prevalent teachings about the eternal nature of the soul and reincarnation and all of that and and having death in the home and um and then also having the the taboo around it and the the fear of death and uh, what is your yeah what is your experience with that your perspective. I feel uh, it's several different cultural influences. Uh, way back when women were, you know, Indian women were not really independent financially. They always were brought up as a daughter and then married off as a daughter-in-law. So you go from your father's house to your father-in-law's house and you're taken care of in, in respect of that service that you provide to the family in a way, right? So the financial independence was never available. So if the, if the, if the man of the right. passed on, the woman would be destitute in a way. Uh, and, uh, you know, I don't know the count of years, but there's to be the the ritual of the sati, which is the Hindu women would burn themselves in the same funeral pyre as their husbands. Because that means your life is over if you are a widow. They, uh, even today, they shave the heads off. They are asked to wear white. Uh, there's some really deeply disturbing images that I have in my heart and how a woman is treated when her husband dies before her. So I think these all these rituals came around for women specifically for that they wanted to die before the man would because they would they were so insecure in their own self. I think that's one part of it. Uh, the second is 
I feel with uh, most organized religions, how the interpretation is being done of us, our scriptures and the messages that we find in our holy books, the interpretation makes a big, big difference. Yeah. And over time, with all the organized religion and, and the monetary factor coming in play and the power, how do you control? You control by giving the message of fear. You know, uh, we've been told that there's hell and heaven, and we've been told that there is yeah. punishment and uh, the the karmic aspect of the, the my karmas are what bring me heaven and hell here, as Ramdas would say. I have heaven and hell right now with me. Where am I going to go? It's not something after, but that whole idea of what happens when we die. And then if I haven't lived a good life, I'm going to land up burning in hell. I think that is there in every organized religion, the way it's yeah. been interpreted. Yeah. And that creates fear. Yeah. We are scared of the unknown. We have not been reassured that whatever you have, you have fear. And then when we drop our body, we go somewhere, the soul goes back to source or, you know, uh, we've not been made to ever focus on this breath, the breath, the breath of God, the impersonal breath. I mean, my body's nothing without breath. And I can't control where my breath is coming from. I can only have faith that it's yeah. being provided to me. It's the impersonal breath. So these are, I feel these are the reasons that death has been sold as fear. That's fear. Yeah. The ultimate. There's nothing worse than dying for an attached mind. Yeah. And there's nothing more free than dying for a, an awakened mind. Mm. That the time comes when my journey is done. You know, we say, welcome home. I, I so often feel that how are, at least I can do that. And I try to do that with my people really close to me. It's like, you know, when I you come home, you go, welcome home. And this is like, after a whole or whatever short long i can't judge lifespans but when the time of death comes it's like and we don't do that yeah and it's our our attachment to the person it's a selfish reason it's not about the person making the end of the journey like baba said taking off the tight shoe that is like taking off a tight shoe what a relief. Mm, yeah. But then there's, you know, death that is happens in a shorter span of life. And that leaves a lot of grief and a lot of suffering. And how do we wrap our head around that? And again, as he as he has said in that letter to Rachel, the legacy that we leave behind and the way we die and the time we die, that's all. At a soul level, yeah. Can can we, you know, what what potent what potent teaching is that? If I could, you know, open my heart and yeah, yeah. So yeah, I I resonate with what you're saying, and that's been 
you know, working with people uh, in grief, e either the counseling work I've done with people either that are contemplating their own deaths or people who experience the death, um, there's, there's two things I've learned. One is that in general, uh, someone having some type of spiritual connection is generally helpful to them in their process. But two, uh, anyone that uh, is a part of any type of fundamentalist religion, and in my experience, it's, it's been all forms of Christianity. Um, if, if we start talking long enough and they start feeling safe enough, eventually um, fear of hell, questions about their loved one, are they really in heaven or not, um, it starts to come up. And uh, what I've really learned is just how uh, damaging, I mean, really just like how much suffering is caused by that deep level of existential fear, right? Because that's, uh, I mean, in a lot of sense, like atheists have it like tremendously better, right? Then like if you're holding on to that level of deep existential fear of even the smallest potential for eternal suffering in hell. Um, so yeah, I, I, I really resonate with with what you're saying with that. Yeah. Um, I guess it also leaves me, because I know that you are involved in uh, service work in India, and specifically you're involved in uh, helping uh, death and dying issues in India. Um, and I imagine all of these experiences and your contemplations and all of that has kind of led to you to doing that work. And so maybe you could talk a little bit about that. I've been uh, going back to India more often than I used to in the last two decades uh, now in the recent years for my aging parents. First of all, my it starts right there now. I look at my parents and have compassion for their age and where they may be and be more available for, for them during this dusk of life, as they, I call this. And... Um, and then observing that around me in in the community and being there for those elders and that you know the the bodies changing and the, the challenges of wanting to hold on to so many different ways the insecurities come up with an aging body so to i have way more compassion towards my immediate community there so that I feel grateful for that because earlier I did not. I was a little disconnected mm. from the whole perspective. And then beyond that, there is this amazing um, shelter in India that was started several years ago for the unhomed. And it's really large. It's about 3,000 people who okay. are at shelter and uh, uh, they don't turn away anyone religious gender none of that matters uh, any state of health mental or physical their doors are open and it's a it's an I don't even know it's 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 God in his biggest form that is functioning this place, this nonprofit. So when I visited them the first time, it's uh, it was started by this uh, a couple, uh, they're both doctors, 
And Tassim always laughs at me when I say it like that, that when I say it's a couple and they're both doctors, I don't know why she, there's something really funny about that. So anyway, so um, he told me, go take a tour of this place and you're going to find a lot of suffering. If you find grief, tell me. Mm. And that was really interesting. So when I was taken every block, right from the children's block to the mental dis disabled, um, the, the beings there that have their limbs missing, there's cancer, there's tuberculosis, and they have different wings for all of that. People were so joyful. They were all so happy. They were just so happy to have me with amongst them. And in the women's section, I was hugged and held and wanted to be danced with. And they were like just delighted that I was there, wanting to just spend a few minutes of my time. I couldn't find grief. Mm. There was a lot of the, you know, there was apparent physical suffering. But I could not find grief, Sitaram. I was, again, blown away one more time. So I um, very kindly, they offered that I could, and it's kind of far from where my parents live. So I go there as and when I can, several times in my trips to India. For the last six months i've been very actively involved it's interesting why maharaji put me in that place i often wonder i wanted to be really close to the dying and he's put me in the midst of the life mm. 15 year olds and above okay so I've been very actively involved with the non-profit there that has um, schools for first generational learners it's again a non-profit that uh, started out with this uh I want to say about eight or 10 children, and now there's 1,600 children, all first-generational learners. Um, their parents normally work both jo two jobs of like street vendors, rickshaw pullers, uh, cleaners, and maid services. So these children come from very humble backgrounds um, with a lot of hope in their eyes, with a lot of excitement about life and what they can do and achieve so it was really interesting a contrast to have here the end of life and here's the beginning of life almost mm. sure. and um i i got again serendipity just the way the the way it unfolded i've been working actively with girls predominantly ages 12 through 16 and uh, more like a mentor program with them. They have, the realization was that they have very poor information about a woman and her body. The parents, the mothers don't talk to them about how a woman's body changes and develops. So they don't have discussions around why do we get a period, simple things like that. What does that even mean? And because again, death and sex are again two taboo topics in India that those subjects are not broached. And these children have so many questions at that age and they have no one to answer. And they try to get them on the web and it, 
wrong knowledge is more harmful than no knowledge, I feel. So I spend about uh, close to 20 hours a week. Can I guess? So I'm thinking about that uh, more or less instruction of honoring your roles, but remembering that, that you're a soul. And uh, in some sense, right? I mean, r- right now you you have a lot of roles that you play in terms of just all the roles in your family, but then all the roles with these different nonprofits. And um, what, like, do you, do you feel like when you're doing this work, does this feel like a spiritual practice for you? Does this feel like some extension of a spiritual truth? Like, why are you going, why are you spending 20 hours a week doing this? And uh, what are the qualities like what's important for you for when you show up with another human to hear them to listen to them it's really important to me um, when i am with someone who's dementia i try to listen from the heart when i'm someone with who's 14 and is struggling to find a voice to express how she's treated uh, in her community because she has dark skin and she's made to feel inferior. I try to listen from my heart and my mind. My heart says, I understand what you're saying. And my mind tries to find an answer to give her some sense of uh, relief that because the color of her skin is darker than the community and the, there's a conditioning around that fair and beautiful. Uh, how do you comfort her but give her a tool to own her own beauty? Uh-huh. As, uh, when uh, when uh, someone around me is having a temper tantrum or a meltdown, I try to listen. What is it that is triggering this reactivity and be and responding from that place? And then when I listen to them, I land up listening to my own self. So it's such a cycle of uh, sometimes it's quoting something Ramdas would have said. And that brings him into the, his essence immediately into the, the situation uh, or reminding myself of mellowing the drama, you know, make it mellow pretty, make it mellow, you know, relax, breathe into it. Um, it's very nourishing. It's very nourishing to be To be in the presence of reminders of my own spirituality. Yeah. Of my own journey. And it's kind of selfish in a way because I feel, I feel fed. Yeah. Yeah, it's selfish in a way, but what I'm also hearing is that if you're there, 
and you're not looking for something, uh, but you're really just listening uh, both to the other person and to, to your own heart and in your own response. And, and you're really just listening as deeply as possible. Uh, what I'm hearing is that it, yeah, it's selfish, but in like the deepest way possible, right? Because you're putting yourself in like true relationship, right? By having that, that listening open stance. Yeah, that's probably why I feel so nourished. I feel very abundant, very abundant. You know, it's um, it's almost like uh, in 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 this poetry around that, and that we are vessels, and you know, and it's this uh, this vessel, and and my prayer has become: let me pour and not store, pour. and. What may I pour? Of course, all of what Ramda said, God is, oh, I have to tell you this. One time we were sitting with Ramdas. I'm sorry, I'm digressing a little bit, but Great. it's so, so sweet. And mm, my daughter, my younger daughter, and uh, we were visiting Ramdas, and we were sitting up in his study, and she was just about 13 or 14 then. This is about six, seven years ago. And she asked, we were in quiet silence for a long time. And then she uh, asked Ramba, she said, I have a question. Why did God create man? This, why did he even, or he or she even create us? And he looked at her and he said, you know, of course, after his seconds of thinking about it, and said, so... God could experience its own self. And she said, but I don't understand that. So he closed his eyes and then he said, God is truth, love, wisdom, peace, and joy. That is what is God. Mm. And when we keep ourselves close to these five ingredients, we are the closest to God. That's how he functions or it functions through us. That is God. And that became the mantra, the joy, wisdom, peace, love, and truth. And a gauge. Also, like, am I coming from that place? Mm-hmm. So, of course, this vessel may pour these all of these attributes, but then there's also darkness and despair and anger and frustration and and helplessness and insecurity. And I have now learned to pour that in my guru's feet mm. regularly. I'm like, I'm going to just pour. I'm not going to store this or that. So here are the, here is here is the offering for you, my darkness and my anger and my and you you take care of it. I will remind myself to be the vessel that can pour, and you you fill that vessel how you want to. Right, so. 
yeah so it's it's this real abundant delicious feeling of i'll watch my thoughts i tell i tell maraji that often i'll i'll watch my thoughts my words and my actions and you watch me mm it's a very simple relationship here mhm mm i like that yeah yeah, and I was thinking about that when you were talking about how, you know, listening to others, you have to listen to yourself, right? Because that's that's been my experience is that if I'm really listening to someone, uh, that means that I have to be able to catch whatever thoughts come in that might try and distract me for a moment or notice when tension arises in my body or, right? I mean, it's, it's not that level of, of listening. It's, uh, it requires that we're deeply connected to ourselves to be able to, to listen to another person in that way. Um, yeah, so I, I, I love that, uh, you'll, you'll watch your, your thoughts, words, and actions and, and Maharaj, you'll watch you. Yeah. Well, I'd like to talk a little bit about Hanuman Maui. Um, but before we transition to that, I'm just curious, uh, in the course of this conversation so far. Has anything else come up that you just feel called to share in this moment that hasn't been said yet? Yes. You asked me about death and dying. And um, in 2016, I want to say around that time, I had a really explicit dream about Ram Das dying. And uh, I woke up with a, you know, that whole feeling, I called uh, Maui and spoke to Dasima. I didn't tell her that I had this dream and it just shaken me up, but uh, I just asked if I could come and if there was room and I could you know, come for a retreat at that point of time and there was space available. So I was here soon enough. So sitting with Ramdas and I told him, I said, you know, I dreamt of you that you had uh, died. And uh, I remember the entire dream and I told him, what it was about and and it so turned out that when i had that particular dream he was in the icu at that point of time and uh i was informed that the doctors had told that given the message that this might be it around that and could be wrong with the year but forgive me for that so that kind of uh validated that there was some kind of a deeper connection here and I did not know what to do with it. So I said, if I dream like this again, what am I supposed to do? And he said, he didn't answer me and I filled in the statement saying, do I pray for you? And he looked at me and he said, no, you be with me. Mm. And I couldn't understand that at that point of time. Be with me. Um, and as I started hospice, and I, I'm certified to be an 11th hour volunteer as well, to be by the bedside of people who are actively dying, I understood that. How to be with someone who's dying. So, you know, the distance, of course, I was not here all the time. I, I, would, I would come and go as and when. A few times a year, sometimes everybody would make fun of me over here. Like, you have nowhere else to go. You show up in Maui every few months, you know. <laughs> but 
And 2019, when Ramdas started his last year around the sun in his body, January, I was supposed to come to Maui to visit with him over just around President's Day weekend. And uh, I, uh, I saw the time of the flight incorrectly. So I was uh, running behind by about 40 minutes to catch my flight because of my foolishness. So by the time I realized I was being driven to the airport and I called them from the car saying, hey, I'm so-and-so, I'm on this flight and I'm sorry I saw the time incorrectly. And uh, please just send a message to the gate. I should be able to make it. And I live about quite far from the airport in Denver. I was laughed at that you're telling them that you saw the time incorrectly. You think they're going to do anything for you? And I said, I can only be truthful right now. And uh, we'll see, you know. So I, uh, the lady on the phone said, ma'am, are you telling us that we should hold the plane? I'm like, no, I'm just telling you to send a message to the gate. That's all I'm asking you for because gates close X amount of time before, uh, you know, the, the departure time. I get to the airport, there's hustling, there's bustling. I managed to jump the lines and asking passengers to let me go. I get pulled out of security, everything to delay me that day. I get to the gate, the, the gate is empty. And there's this one agent waiting there. And she looked at me and I started to cry. And she said, we wouldn't have gone without you. And she scotted me to the, the craft, the crew, the passengers, the baggage, everything was in its place. They were waiting for one passenger to show up. And I was at the first seat. They put me, set me in my seat. They put my carry-on somewhere, closed the gate, uh, the door of the craft, and we left. And all this time, I'm like, this is, this is crazy. Uh, for a flight to wait like 15, 20 minutes, I don't even know. And I was too embarrassed. They kept asking me, are you okay? Because I was just bawling. And I said, uh, yes, I'm fine. I was too embarrassed to say that I saw the time incorrectly and made this phone call. But I knew there was a bigger, there was something bigger happening. This just could not be a random, you know, importance that the flight was waiting. So I get to Maui. Dasima picks me up at the airport. She said, you know, pretty we a cliff and Dasima were there. And she said, we have to take Ramdas for a small procedure. It's an outpatient thing. If you want, you can rest or you can come with us. So no, I, I'll come with you. We reach home. I go up to meet Baba in his study. And I looked at him and I said, thank you for holding the plane for me today. And he burst out laughing. We went to the airport, I'm sorry, to the hospital. And that 15-minute outpatient procedure turned into a full-blown surgery that night. He was in the operation theater and we sat outside singing the chalices because we did not know what was going on and then the next day he was in the ICU and that's when this, the journey of be with me started in that form uh, coming so close to dropping his body to staying on and still every bit of him he served from every bit of his being to be with him in in that respect as well of not only being with him in his in his journey it was teaching me he taught me the biggest 
one, one of the biggest gifts he's given me is kept, kept me really close that last year of his life. I made like, I think every other month I was in Maui and really saw how beautifully and gracefully he was dying every day. And then, you know, that was the same year that he made the trip to Taos, landed in Denver, received him in Denver, was very close with, with the group throughout that trip into Taos and back. And he was dying every single day and so gracefully. Mm. Till November was my last time I met him in body. And I said, my absolute last hour before I left for the airport, him and I sat together and I was looking up into his eyes and sitting by his feet. And uh, he said his goodbye. He knew I wouldn't see him again, you know. And uh, he said to me, now remember, I'm just the worm. And there is a golden bridge of light from your heart to mine. And you walk on it any time you want to. Mm. So whenever I get off that golden bridge, because of my own drama, there is such haste to get back onto that golden bridge because I know that it's it's there for me. He opened that, he, he left, he left me with that golden bridge from my heart to him. And it's really it's really spectacular to be on that bridge. Mm. Yeah. Is that... If you're not on the bridge, what does getting back on it mean? Is it just remembering? Letting go. Uh -huh. Letting yeah. go of that path that is keeping me off the bridge. And that yeah. is sometimes, it could be anger over a circumstance. It could be uh, just myself and my woes and my, my humanness and my, you know, something from the past, something about the future. Any of that, it takes me off the bridge. Letting go of that in that moment. And sometimes it takes really long. Sometimes it takes me of like 24 hours to get back onto the bridge. And sometimes it's even taken me like a month to be able to move past forgiving. Though Ramdas never really believed in the word forgiving because he said that when you have power over somebody else, when you feel that you have to forgive somebody, that means you've you know, got this power play going on. But just forgiving 
my own understanding is where I've come to it. I have to forgive my understanding of the particular person or incident. It's not about them, it's about me. Yeah. I have to learn that. And that's sometimes it's taken me, you know, sometimes a lot of talking to Ramdas and Maharaji and uh, pouring out those emotions and those thoughts. And then when that baggage gets lessened, then I can get onto the bridge again. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you've, you've identified, right, both the core of it, right? It's, it's, it's remembering how to let go in the moment. Uh, and then also identified a lot of the supports that you use to do that, right? In terms of pouring your stuff at Maharaji's feet, um, things like singing the Hanuman Chalisa, right? Um, and all of those, right, are, are those supports for that, that act of remembering to let go. And what I'm hearing is sometimes it, it really can be as simple as just when we remember, we remember, right? It's just mm-hmm. but when it's not that simple, then, <laughs> you know, it's, it's just not. Yeah. Hey, even Lakshman needed Hanumanji to bring him the Sanjeevani booty. What? Wow. I, what? I? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know? So. Okay. Do you? So, right now, you're there at Hanuman Maui, right? You're you're there in uh, one of the rooms. Uh, you've been there now for a couple months. Um, if you have this. Rainbow Bridge, uh, if, if you're connected to Maharaji at all times, whether we remember or not, um, why be there? Like, what is it about that space that uh, you either want to be of service to or that you feel nourished by? Why, why are you there right now? It's another role that I'm playing of being on the board of Hanuman Mavi. And it's uh, it's the answering to for me. It's answering to Maharaji for putting me into this role. This is not a role that I wanted or expected or thought of. I was very warmly invited to be serving on the board of Hanuman Mavi, which as we know is this is that container of Ramdas's love and presence where he really never made it his own. It was always about introducing people to Maharaji. He was the fish in this this fishbowl you know, and uh, there's a sense of responsibility to fulfill this role with, to the best of my capacity. So, of course, being here has its own charm. I mean, you know, I mean, it's Ramdas all around in Haraji's, the satsang, the the grounds, it, it's all such a reminder for any of us who've been 
with Ramdas in his body to be here because it has such a reminiscence around the, his chairlift and mm-hmm. and his favorite cup and his study and his room where he took his last breath. But what's super what's the right word? Um Again, the sweetness in the honey, how do you describe that? His essence is really powerful. And that comes to our years when people come and visit and they feel him and they feel acknowledged by him. And it's interesting that someone comes for Ramdas and meets Maharajji. They, have, they only come because this is Ramdas's house. And they land up meeting Maharaji. Mm-hmm. And someone comes for Maharaji, Neem Karoli Baba, and they land up meeting Ramdas and take away his books or his teachings or you know, start looking him up for podcasts. It's such an amazing way that he's still continuing to tell people about Maharaji. Mm. Yesterday, an Indian family had come by because they want heard of Hanuman on Maui. So they only came to meet Hanuman. Right. Okay. So welcome. They lit a little, uh, little incense in the temple. They asked about how the Hanuman, Hanuman Jimuti was made and, you know, the little history behind that. They had no idea who Ramdas is. They did not acknowledge Maharaji at all. And then... After they offered their prayers there and sang the Chalisa as a family, there were about seven of them or so. They started asking me a few questions, and it one thing led to the next, which was this, this is Ramdas's legacy, which is a part of Nimparoli Baba's legacy globally, and we are a part of that. And he was an incarnation of Hanuman. And then they wanted to see, oh, Ramdas, I said, you know, if you'd like, I can take you inside and show you his study, and you know. And the moment they came in, and as in, in his chair, he would often tell people, have you met Maharaji with this big picture there? And these people, they looked at them and their daughter-in-law says, this is an, uh, the same Neem Karoli Baba where a very famous Indian cricketer had just gone to the Kachi Ashram. And that made it all over the press. Like he's the name in cricket. She goes, is it the same Neem Karoli Baba that... This particular cricketer had, I said, yes. He said, oh, and this is Mark Zuckerberg and Steve Jobs. And this whole piece got, said for them, it was suddenly getting darshan of Maharaji because that was their, that was their uh, perception. And as they were leaving, they were like, this is unbelievable. This is unbelievable. On a Thursday, we always go to a temple. And today he brought us here. And they were just, eyes were sparkling and they wanted to, juice it more and I was just laughing in my head, you know, here comes Maharaji and his way of you know. So being here has all that excitement and it's like a little a roller coaster. There's always this, you know, ups and downs and there's it's communal and how do we remember this is about Ramdas's loving awareness sanctuary how do we bring it back again and again to serving him we are here to serve him 
that's the best way I know that I can honor my guru and uh, keeping that in focus for myself. Someone else may remind me when I forget and I can remind somebody else when they forget. Yeah. Yeah, it's been amazing for me. Uh, It's just all the people that have come there that uh, had no relationship beforehand, right? Maybe they had listened to Ram Dass and podcasts, but they had never met him and never been to the house before. Uh, and I've been able to have intimate conversations, right? With a lot of the people that have come there. And I'm always asking, I always want to know, like, what was it like when you went up in his study? Like, you know, just, wait, wait, slow down. What about this? What about this? And, uh, and sure enough, I mean, it's just, it's so, as far as I can tell, universal, just the impact uh, of what people are experiencing when they come. I mean, people are really having true darshan of, of that loving awareness, right? Having darshan of Maharaji, uh, experiencing Ramdas's presence, um, and they're experiencing it in that place. And uh, there's just something, uh, intellectually, I can't understand that, but, uh, but it's real. Yeah, it's, it's, it's real. And it's not just for those of us that have the memories and all that, although that's great to experience too, but the, the, the presence is, is truly beyond that. And, uh, and what allows it to be there, I do think, is the fact that there's people that recognize it and want to put care and, and serve that, right? Taking care of the, the actual space so that people can come. And uh, I mean, w- what a beautiful thing that the Hanuman Maui exists in this world. Yes, we're so grateful. And it's interesting to me, Sitaram, that I feel all throughout his uh, incarnation in his body, Ramdas served Maharaji. Uh, and by taking his last breath here, it's like he breathed life into something that was non existent at that point of time, and that's turned out to be Hanuman Mavi. Yeah extremely sacred in that manner you know it's he is still teaching and still bringing Maharaji to Maharaji's grace so many and and we, we the visitors who come here practically every week we'll have a few visitors who have never met Ramdas in person and it's a pilgrimage for them. That's the word they've used. Like they've yeah. cried. They're like we, this is a pilgrimage for us. And it, yeah. ah, that, hmm. it, it, that's, that's it's such an honor and such an honor and privilege to be a part of this, this fishbowl, you know? Yeah. 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 And then it's also offering a space for people that uh, want to like truly deepen their sadhana, right? I mean, it's it's offering a space for people to be able to come and spend time and to be of service and to engage in practice, and and that's something that's so meaningful to me, right? Because uh, that's what that same house did for me. I mean, it's just, it's, it gave me everything in my life, and the fact that it's still as a physical space, offering that for people that that want to go somewhere and, and, and deepen into their practice that people can still go there and do retreats. People can still do and go there and, and engage in seva. Uh, I mean, that's, that is such a, a meaningful gift and, and something that, 
I think we definitely need more of in the United States is actual places where people can go and and truly deepen into their their spiritual lives. Yeah. And I think you will agree with me since you lived here and you were caregiving for Ramdas and learning while you were, you know, offering care, you were learning. That is the way he taught us. I don't remember Ramdas ever telling me directly, you are supposed to chant this mantra or read that book. He would just really lead us into self-study and self-inquiry and finding the answers within myself. That's that's what Maharaj did for the most Westerners that I have heard stories from. It's like, you know, like Krishnadas says that, when he asked him, how will I serve you? And he just looked at him with a disgusted face, like, you figure it out. I'm not going to tell you because that's the voice of, that's the voice of the truth, the God within me is going to show me when it's time, when I'm ready and I'm listening. I have to listen. So, um, Ramdas never told you probably, I mean, maybe he did, but he never told me you're supposed to read a book or chant a mantra or you know it was a lot of work it's a tough teacher they're tough teachers they don't make it easy by giving you a cheat sheet for the lesson plan it's my lesson plan i gotta study for it i gotta take the test that's it he's just being you know and that's what's happening even now with people who've come on retreats here and we they leave, they come and their hearts burst open and they but they still have to do their own work. We can only support them in providing the space and the nourishment and the teachings that we've been given and we share them and when we share them he's alive. But it ultimately is they do the work themselves. And that's what we support. Yeah. Yeah. That's more or less was my experience with him. It's it's interesting. He did give me uh, a few instructions, uh, but it had more to do, I think, just with my specific karma. At one point, you know, he, he said, you should read spiritual books. I said, and, and I just, I got so like neurotic that moment. I was like, really? Because I I feel like I read spiritual books a lot, but whenever I'm reading, I just feel like I should be meditating instead. Like I'm just like going on about like all my self doubts. Right. And he just, you should read spiritual books. (laughs) And it it was such a, it was just like a permission slip. It was like, he knew my mind and what I needed. And he was just validating that. Um, Cause I am, I'm, I'm a voracious reader. Uh, you know, I, I read a spiritual book every night, like something before I fall asleep. Uh, so there's like those little things, but in terms of like practice and all that, I mean, I, I thought that's what I was going there for. I thought that I'd finally have someone tell me what to do. And he really, uh, he never, he encouraged me when, when he saw me gravitate towards chanting. I mean, in multiple ways, I mean, he really encouraged that, but he never once told me like, go do this. It was more just, he saw me doing it and saw how much I was doing it. And, and he found little ways to, to encourage it. Um, yeah. So I, I can just validate that. He didn't tell you which books to read. He just told you spiritual books. Yeah. One time he did tell me, here's another little funny story. He said, you should read the Bhagavad Gita. I mean, this is after we're just sitting in silence, right? And just like, he's like speaking words very spaciously. And I said, 
oh, I have read that. (laughs) And he said, you should read it again. (laughs) Now I have like 10 different copies of it. And I like compared translations and like, now I feel like I can never read it enough. Right. But um, that's just a funny little moment. Um, Have you found a favorite interpretation? uh, One of the more favorite ones for your own taste? Yeah, because I, um, so part of my uh, personal things that I do to keep my mind busy is I I study Sanskrit. Uh, I'm definitely an amateur student, uh, but I do. And so I have a particular copy. It's really thick and I have it because it, not only does it give a very technically accurate translation with footnotes, but it actually breaks down every word and it breaks it into the part of speech and, and all those things. And so that's really useful for me in terms of uh, I, I can deepen my Sanskrit study. It also gives me something that I can then base all the different translations and the poetic interpretations off of. Um, so that's, that's been more or less uh, my main focus for a while. Uh, because then it can become more of a meditation, right? I mean, I can really just sit with the verse because I can like really analyze the parts of speech and look at the verbal roots. And so my mind can be very active, but I'm, I'm also just, just meditating on a few lines. Um, and so that's, that's just good for me and my makeup and constitution. The intellectual part of who gets fed, the jnana, the jnana yoga. Yeah. Along with the bhakti yoga and the karma yoga, Yeah. Um, well, really, I just want to thank you for your generous time uh, and just for the being that you are. And I'm just grateful also to be in your presence. And uh, that's quite nourishing for me. So I, I want to thank you for that. Um, do you have any, um, yeah, any final thoughts you want to share? Yeah, does Hanuman Maui have anything coming up that? Um, you want to let people know about or yeah, anything in that realm? Jai Hanuman. Jai Hanuman. Okay. Well, again, thank you so much and Ram Ram. Thank you so much. Thank you for all that you do and offer and that being that you are.